Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Manafinua of Te Awakairangikitai, where I'm recording today. Hi. Hi. Hello, hello. How was your enormous, wonderful four weeks in the United Kingdom? It was absolutely delightful. 10 out of 10. Highly recommend. No notes. I think you went at the best time of the year. Were the days so long? Were the, were the afternoons so wonderful? Days were very long. It was very warm in London anyway. Um, yeah, glorious. People were in good moods. Well, actually, no, they were pretty grumpy because it was too hot. But it was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely being out and about. It was lovely sitting in parks, reading, spending my days doing nothing other than the things that I wanted to do. I had a glorious routine. Everything was just so wonderful. Saw my friends. Went to Scotland, did a bunch of writing, had a great time. Yay. I'm so excited yeah. that you got to go on this amazing trip. I loved all of your Instagram stories. I was just like, show me more, show me more. But also like, <laughs> enjoy your vacation, be in the moment, but like, show me more. Most people were like, stop posting, please. I don't want to see this. Stop being friends with cynical nihilists. Only be friends with people like me who are like, yes, more. I love it. Show me all of your yeah. vacation photos. <laughs> I think it's, I'm going to do it every year, actually. I think this is a really good investment in my writing and in myself. Mm. It keeps me accountable because it gives me something that I need to work towards, meaning that I want to have a project ready or done by a certain point, which is something I really struggle with, accountability. Yeah. But also just having a month where I don't have to think about anything else. The only priority for me was my writing. Like, I didn't go to sightsee. Yes, I went to see my friends, but, like, I was spending my days... I would walk down to the South Bank Centre, I would sit there and I would write, and then I would go and do something in the afternoon, and then I'd see my friends and stuff. So it was like mm. a real nice routine. It was nice to make that the focus. It was just really great. Like, when your brain is free and empty to do these things, it just is so much easier, you know? Yeah. So I think this is something that I'm going to invest in and give myself every year as, like, a little treat. What was that thing? I was just reading something the other day that was, like, instead of saying... As a treat, we should start saying for morale and like imagine ourselves as like a <laughs> ship. So like you should do this for morale. You should do this for the, the the pirate ship that is Gen V for your morale. And honestly, I'm in so like I feel so good. I realized while I was over there, this was the first holiday I've had in ten years where I haven't been on call. Like I didn't have to do any work. There was no expectations that I would. They didn't need me for anything. I didn't have to drop in or out. I could just completely switch off and I honestly feel amazing like I feel genuinely rested I'm so much better at work as well because I'm not as grumpy as I normally am I have way more mm -hmm. patience for people and all the nonsense that happens in a workplace like yes I've only been back for like a week and a half but still I don't have that thing where sometimes you come back after Christmas and you're just like oh I'm still tired yeah, I'm not still tired yeah and Christmas yeah. is such a fake holiday anyway in terms of work because they want us to do stuff and if there's an incident and you're in town you have to deal with it like you have to work over Christmas sometimes because yeah exactly you're yeah exactly yay so anyway it was just great it was great it was great 10 out of 10 <laughs> I'm glad you got this time well what sparked joy for you this week tell me about you Oh, well, this week we finally had the long-awaited appointment with the other school. Um, and we're just sort of 
crossing our T's and dotting our I's at this point. Like we know where we want our son to keep going to school. We're happy with the path we're on, but we've had to navigate other people's opinions and that's been really stressful. Um, And so this was just a way of sort of being like, we're going to go and do the thing to, you know, in good faith, knowing that this is important to somebody who really loves our son. Um, But the, the outcome of the meeting was they were both like, and why are you here again? Like, we're happy to talk to you, but like, there's, you know, like, why are you here? You're absolutely doing what you should be doing in our professional and personal opinion. So that was like, thank you. Very, very good. So it was just nice to have that like done over with the validation that Mm -hmm. we are doing what we should be doing, which I knew because I'm very intuitive. It was nice to have that over with. It felt like a great weight had been lifted. So we have to, after that, we dropped our son back at school, went off and had lunch together and then came home and we were just very relieved. Oh, great. I love that. You were so good through that whole situation. I don't think I could have done it with the grace that you certainly displayed. So, yeah. I won't lie. The first little bit of it was rough, but, you know, I can get over myself pretty quickly these days, which is a definite asset. (laughs) um, What sparked joy for you this week? I've just been catching up with my mates, which has been lovely, you know, had book club and then also the football, football world cup is on, Mm -hmm. which is both, it's great, but also, you know how I feel about football, but um, I went to the game. Yeah. Yet again, (laughs) I would like to point out this would greatly improve the game as I saw last (laughs) night. But anyway, so I went with my friend last night to a game here in Wellington and I said to her, I'm very uninterested in football as a concept, but it's great to support the women. Mm. Great to support this event. And it'd be nice to catch up with you. So she came along and we just had a lovely time, chatted, had snacks, watched the football, went home. That's great. Had to wear so many layers, including those fleecy <laughs> tights you bought me. Yay! They were fantastic. Aren't they so good? Oh. Under my jeans. I'm like, yep. gotta, gotta layer up. <laughs> I stole that trick from Kat, our friend Kat, who sang the praises of fleecy tights to me a long time ago and I have never forgotten. I have two pairs that I keep in regular rotation. And I also have a pair of 100% merino thermals that are really good for like super cold days. And that's when I'm like, yep, just, I don't like the seams. So I put them on inside out, but yeah, lifesaver. Yeah, I had the, I had the merino top on, mm-hmm. fleecy thigh, tights, jeans, big old sweater, merino sweater as well. And then my big coat that my friend Anna gave me mm-hmm. that is basically only good for European winters or sporting events in <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> Amazing. So it was great. Um, yeah, definitely spark joy. <laughs> it's great seeing all of the amazing women's teams. I, I really think Women's World Cup is just such an incredible showcase of skills. I also love the New Zealand team. Like, I can never pick between the New Zealand team and the Matildas. <laughs> I feel like I have to love them both. But, like, I feel like I've got foot in both countries. And I just am so proud every time they do well. I'm like, look at them. Look at how good they've done. So it's really That exciting. was so good. No one expected them to win their first game against Norway. And they did. And I was watching it. I had I didn't have the sound on. And I just had the game on and my housemate came home and she's like why are we watching the football I'm like we are supporting the women <laughs> and then the, the goal happened and I was like oh my goodness they've scored a goal I'm like genuinely shocked <laughs> Hannah someone right yeah Hannah yeah yeah honestly the New Zealand team has one of the best goalkeepers I've ever seen in my life oh Nick Essen she's a wall you can't get past her that she was great yeah Although I have to say the hardest worker like last night because I went to the, oh my gosh, Spain-Costa Rica game and the Costa Rican goalkeeper, she was the MVP. Like she was the hardest worker in Wellington, bar none. Like this woman was incredible. Yeah. I love it. It just makes my heart so happy. I know nothing about how soccer works, but I am excited when they get goals and I'm proud of them when they work hard. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Oh, we should get to 
our actual reading. Oh my gosh, yeah. So it's season yeah. 11. New book. Exciting. It's really exciting. So we're reading chapters 1 through 10 through the theme of loneliness. And we're reading Any Way the Wind Blows. So we're about to get our hearts broken into 80 bajillion pieces. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Um, do you have a story in the theme of loneliness for us? Yeah, so loneliness is a big old theme, isn't it? Mm. So I was thinking about it in different ways. And I what I particularly thought of was the loneliness you experience when you move to a new place. So mm. you have, whether that's moving countries or you're moving cities, or even if you're going to, say, a new college or something. I was thinking of, you know, Fangirl, if we're talking about this book as well, like, mm. you know, Kath moving to... Yeah to go to college and how lonely she was in that moment. When you go to a new place, you sort of, your life becomes so narrow because you don't know anyone and you're sort of very unsure of yourself, unsure of your surroundings. You don't have that confidence that you have. And I think confidence is so important when we are forming relationships. Like you need to really back yourself a lot of the time because you have to put yourself out there, which requires you to be vulnerable. And if you're already feeling threatened because you're in a new place, it's really, really hard to be vulnerable. And I think what I've experienced and all of my moving is that you would end up, you'll go to work. Like you have a workplace. That's where you do most of your social interaction. You're meeting people, you're chatting to people, whatever, whatever. Maybe you even have a friend at work and mm. you might go for dinner after work, but you sort of cease to exist to these people on the weekend. Like it just yeah. becomes a void. Your weekends become this impenetrable fog. And you, I was so acutely aware of it when I first moved to London because I had a very active social life during the week with my work friends And then on the weekend, it would just be nothing. And I'd be like, wow, I'm just completely on my own here. And I don't think of myself as someone who gets lonely. Like, I really like my own company. I'm incredibly independent. I don't think I get lonely now. But I think back then there was a real acute sense of I'm on my own. And also that sense that comes with loneliness of like, I'm missing out. Like, they're all having fun. Not necessarily without me, but they're all having fun and I'm not. Like, they have their own lives, they have their own friends. Not necessarily with each other, but just, you know, they've got other things going on. And I'm the one who's sitting at home with absolutely nothing to do. And I can go all weekend without speaking to another person. And not the way that I can do that now, which is out of my own free volition. It was an enforced thing. Yeah. And that made me think of a book, it's called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. Um, I forget the author, but we'll pop it in the show notes. And Eleanor is exactly like this. She has this very regimented work life. She has a routine. She really relies on routine to get her stuff done. She doesn't think there's anything missing in her life. She's very happy with her life. She avoids social interactions out of her own free will. And then her weekend, she basically just drinks a lot, blacks out, and then goes back to work. So the weekend is just like a nothing thing. And I think at one point she talks about the fact that weekends were something to be endured to get back to her normal life. Right. And I think that's so interesting as well, because I also thought there's a a Frightened Rabbit song called The Loneliness. And there's a line in the song that goes, in the loneliness and the scream to prove to everyone that I exist. And I think that is such a thing with loneliness that sometimes you feel like you're invisible. You feel like everyone else is living a life and no one can see you and see what you're going through or like you're just this bit player. And sometimes you do feel like just screaming just to be acknowledged, right? I think people, I was looking up the meaning of loneliness and it's, you know, people describe it as a state of solitude or of being alone but it is very much a mental thing like people crave human contact that's just who we are right we want community that's what defines us but when you're lonely it actually makes it quite difficult to connect with others because you're already in this really heightened state Mm -hmm. and I think it's very unique and very complex because everyone is lonely in a very individual way 
And um, because there's no single common cause, it's really hard to like treat or give people advice to combat that kind of loneliness. And I think we see that in this section, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of loneliness, but very distinct. Everyone is sort of lonely in their own way. Yeah. Which is just really interesting. So, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. It's a lot to think about. I always feel like loneliness is such a distinct emotion. Not being understood, not being seen, not being perceived, but when you want to be known and perceived. Yeah, and I certainly felt that with Baz in this section. I feel yeah. like he was making so many bids for connection that no one was picking up yes. on and how acutely lonely that is. Oh, it's the worst because the longer you go without any responses, the worse you feel. The more you feel like you've just become this pathetic beggar of, yeah. of attention. Like, look at me, look at me. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. like, I read that. I could only read that section once because it was so painful. I just thought, okay, I'm skipping over it. I'll let Jen V talk about it. I can't. <laughs> I can't actually go deep into that section because it hurts so much to know what's coming. I chickened out. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, um, why don't you do our chapter summaries and then we can get into it. All right, I'll catch everybody up. So in the last novel, our intrepid team were flying home after a harrowing American misadventure to rescue Fiona Pitch from jail. So we start this novel by meeting Lady Ruth, Lucy's mother. She is now looking for her son, Jamie, who has gone missing. Simon gets an unexpected inheritance and tries to push back, but then he realizes he could use it for another purpose. Penny takes Shepard home for a consultation, but her mother tries to spell him stupid, which leaves him without any recourse to solving his demon problem. Penny then refuses to send him on his merry way without a solution. Uh, Baz bails his ungrateful auntie out of jail, but upon arriving home in Oxford to check with his dad, discovers no Daphne there and gets stuck helping out at home for a week. Meanwhile, Simon is ghosting Baz as he prepares to leave the world of mages behind forever. I have a lot of feelings about this. Yeah, so, right, okay, where to start? So let's talk about Baz. <laughs> let's talk about Baz. Rip the bandaid off. Baz's loneliness is just on so many levels. Like, he's lonely in his family, not only as a vampire and as a queer person, but politically, he's also alone. Like, yep. he has forged this new identity, he has these alliances, these friends, right? He tells P Fiona that he can bail her out because, you know, Buns and Wobble are vouched for him, not yep. for her. For him, it's because he's forged this relationship with them that he's able to help her out. And she's so ungrateful. Oh, she's so dismissive. And like, he's so alone in this, in this family. Mm. And he's alone in his grief in a way as well, because it's a grief for this mythical figure, this larger than life figure that sort of haunts all of them. But Fiona's right, he doesn't actually know her, but he still griefs her, right? And that's yeah. just something that he can't get past. And then, oh my gosh, I think... All of chapter eight, the chapter that you skipped over. Yeah. <laughs> where Baz is just texting Simon. Updating Stream him. of consciousness, texting him, basically being like, this is happening, this is happening. And he makes so many bids of connection. He gives Simon so many things that he could pick up on. And you can tell, like, this is a classic, I'm telling you what I need without telling you what I need. Yeah. Like, you can just take any of this. Like, you can just turn up at my door, you know, bring me more clothes. I say, like, I wish I'd brought more clothes with me. Mm -hmm. That's a hint, Simon. Yeah. But it just doesn't pick it up. And then he says, I don't need a phone to talk to myself. Yeah. Because he's been alone for so long as well. Yeah. Oh, That was the line that I wrote down because I thought this is just the hardest. Like, it's it's the end. It's at the end of that chapter. And he's just like, I don't need a phone to talk to myself. I'll, I'll talk to you more about it when I get back to London. And it it's just awful because he has been talking to himself and he's acknowledging that like there's a lot of loneliness and saying I am alone in this I'm not getting the support I need and of course it's Baz so he's not saying the obvious thing which Simon 
really kind of needs because Simon is not very good at picking up what other people are putting down. So he needs somebody to say, hey, I would like you to come and bring me clothes. Hey, I really need you to text me back. Baz is very polite about it. And he's kind of like, uh, what am I? He's kind of presenting the option like hey if you wanted to maybe yeah because he's also been raised like not to ask he's yeah. not allowed to want things he's not allowed to ask for things he has to just be you know be this kind of polite thing but you're right and simon loves he loves an act of service right like he's a man who loves yeah. doing he loves a task he loves a mission so if you mm. actually gave him a mission he'd be very happy but yeah i mean even on page 29 when Baz says, I laugh, desperate for anything that passes for banter. Like, he is reading into things. He just, he will make it be there, even if it isn't there. And then he says, Tim, I'll be home tomorrow. And he doesn't reply. Like, oh, it's just, it's so painful. And to be lonely like that in a relationship, I think, is so acutely painful. Because it's someone that you love. It's someone that you care for. You're giving them what you think. You're giving them the sign, right? You're giving them what you think they need, that they can be there and they don't pick it up and they don't come for you. And you're like, wow, I'm really like not a priority for this person. And that is such yeah. a lonely thing. It really is. And I think there's a bit of Baz sort of needing that from Simon. He needs somebody to want him in that way, but he tries to give it as a way of like opening that connection. Mm. And the problem really is that Simon just has decided he doesn't belong in this world and has to ghost everyone. Yeah, I feel like Simon really misinterprets Dr. Wellbeloved, but the Doctor doesn't really understand what is happening and he doesn't know how to reach him in the right way. Yeah. So Simon is always, always projecting his own insecurities onto what people are saying. He's always like reading something that's yeah, not there. Yeah, yeah, Because when Dr. Wellbeloved is like, he, the bottom line is he owes you. He owes you more than this. And that is true. Mm. He has used Simon. He does owe him more than Absolutely. this. Like This is not a reflection of Simon not being the chosen one, but he's so wrapped up in this what was expected of him, the expectations of all that. He can't see the forest for the trees, you know? Mm-hmm. It's incredibly frustrating. It is frustrating. Yeah, I think there's also what you were saying about Simon reading into, reading his own insecurities into other people's comments. When he bursts out and says, you know, I wanted to help him, and he says, no, I was the chosen one. And then they both look away. I don't think Dr. Wellbelove is like, no, you weren't. I think he's like, yes, and look where it got you. And Simon's like, oh, wait, yeah. I'm not. I wasn't the chosen one. I, it was just another lie we were all taken in by. I think they're just horrified by what's happened to him. Like, they're just yeah. so overwhelmed by what 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 has occurred, right? Mm. And I think there's also, like, in that section, really clear examples of expectations as dictated by social conformity really hurting people. Like, that whole Agatha and I were supposed to get married, like, her, you know, her mum was pro- pro- probably already had our wedding planned, yeah. right? So that is a real social conformity thing. This understanding of what we think our lives should look like, whether that's marriage or sexuality or whatever, yeah. and how those expectations really hurt people. Like, Simon talks about Dr. Wellbeloved telling him about the birds and the bees, and then he says, <laughs> I feel now like he left out some pretty crucial information, you know? Yeah. And then also with Pramal, like, the fact that he's not going to uni... They're not allowed to talk about mental health. Like these are expectations of behavior that really hurt people in the long run, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the person that struck me as having the clearest understanding of the difference between expectation and reality is actually Lucy. Or sorry, not Lucy, Lady Ruth. When mm. she's talking about how she's she's got this candle going for her daughter and it's been going for 20 years. And we can infer from that that Simon got all of Lucy's life force, which she said as she was narrating back in the first book. And so this candle is still going because he has all of this life force. Um, And she's lighting this other candle for her son who's disappeared. And this is going to be the sort of mystery of the first half of the book. And she talks about how 
Even the power of a mother's love couldn't match that man, the mage's capacity for violence and vengeance, and how Lucy was sort of dragged into this world. Mm. Because she had a strong sense of what justice should be. And she's, like, really realistic about it. She's realistic about the fact that her love is not enough. Like, the expectation is that a mother's love can conquer all. And she's like, well, no, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It's a really interesting... Like, she seems to be the most level out of all of this. Simon is is expecting that he can just walk away from the world that he's been in for the last decade. Baz is expecting that the more bids he puts out there, maybe Simon will respond to just one of them and that'll be enough. And Penny just thinks that things will go her way because she's used to it happening like that. Like, everybody's expectations are getting an adjustment right here. Yeah. I love the, you know, the expectations of parents in particular. Like, you Mm. talk about Lady Ruth being really sensible, but the way the kids expect their parents to behave. Like, Baz is an expectation of what his dad is going to behave like, which is really challenged in this. Penny also expects her mum to behave a certain way, even though, you know, she's taking a normal home. She's like, no, the mystery of it is bigger than what it is. There's an expectation of what the house is going to be like for both of them when they get there. You know, Penny's house is too many people live here, too many people with too many things that is met. Baz's expectation is like, the TV's going, I think I'm in the wrong house. Like, you know, these... (laughs) Why do all these children have devices? so weird right you expect your parents to behave a certain way and then sometimes you see that they're human and you're like what which is what Baz is experiencing right like his dad is crying in front of him this man who cannot talk about anything which is another loneliness that he mentions in his chapter right where he's like yeah god forbid my father ever talks about anything oh it's so sad it's so sad the loneliness that Baz feels and I honestly think if he just sat his dad down and was like we need to talk about this his dad would talk Mm. to him I really think they just have this expectation of politeness between them. Yeah, which is a barrier. Which prevents them from being vulnerable because it's not done, you know? And then you see that contrasted to the way that Penny and her mum talk to each other, right? Like really just saying exactly what they're thinking, like the real adults about it. Cracks me up that, you know, Mitali expects Simon to be with Penny and Penny expects Simon to be there for her as well. Mm. They have these roles to fulfil, but then... Penny has this expectation of herself to solve all problems because that's what she does. Yeah. And Mitali sort of views this as a danger-seeking behavior. She's yeah. like, stop putting your ore in where it doesn't belong. <laughs> I love that. I love that she just decided that this was just Penny hooning around, basically, getting an adrenaline rush, rather than Penny actually being like, well, no, I've kind of figured out that this non-mage person is worthy of our attention and consideration. I love when she says, I can't believe, on page 35, I can't believe mum was so dismissive. She's the one who taught me this fear of accountability. Like, again, this expectation Mm. of what I've been taught how to behave, how to expect how to behave, expect my mum to meet me on that because she's the one who taught me that. And then that expectation being not met, right? It's crazy that that happens with so many people and their parents, especially as, like, especially as we go into adulthood, right? And then our parents have these ideals. And like, when you're young, you just trust your parents. And then you start to question them when you're a teenager. And this is all very normal developmentally. But then there are some times when like, my mom or dad will say something now. And I'm just like, you didn't raise me that way. Why are you saying that? And it's such a shock to me because like Penny with the sphere of accountability, I'm sort of like, what? How could you think that? Like, this is contrary to everything that you taught me to Mm. believe. And it's just hard sometimes to realize that our parents do change and grow. <laughs> sometimes not in ways Everyone, that we appreciate. Yeah. yeah. Guess we're always changing, right? We can't expect things to stay the same or stay stationary. But I think our parents, we often expect that because they were such cornerstones to yeah. us growing up, right? Foundational and formational. Yeah, for real. Mm. Um, I love that Shep's like, parents like me. And then Penny's mom does not like him. And he was like, oh, you were right about your mom not liking me. That was a great moment. Expectation met. 
and subverted. He just can't get the bunces on side, can he? <laughs> I also like that there was a, a little nod to the fact that Simon was had said, oh, this is your mom is you, what you will be like in 25 years when you have fewer Fs to give. And then she's trying to get her mom to understand and her mom just keeps bulldozing over her. And it's exactly what Penny has done all of the time to everyone ever. Yeah. And she even has this moment where she's trying to talk at the very end of the section where she's trying to talk to Simon, like, oh, this and this, and I've got this new spell for your wings. And he goes, no, I need you to listen. Like, that's where we wind up our reading for the week is like him saying, no, I need you to listen. But, you know, she does. She does stop and let him talk. Cause she's yeah, because she's having this real, she's having this real come to Jesus moment, right? Where she's like, well, if I've been wrong about being right about everything, then I might have been wrong about everything, mm. right? Like she's, her expectations of her worldview has really shifted and she's yeah. still dealing with the repercussions of that off the off from the last book. It's pretty great. I thought maybe there's a loneliness in the loss of family or a lack of family entirely. Like I feel Lady Ruth mm. seemed very lonely. You know, she talks about on page one, even someone to share the burden of his sorrows. I never expected yeah. to walk this path so long by myself. Her children have gone away. Her husband is dead. She's just like, and she's lost her kids in a way to all these external forces. Right. And she, yeah. She really, the, the loneliness of Lucy, I think, always so stood out to me in that, like, she had to withdraw from her friends and family because of their opinion about this man. And, you know, the same way that Simon is withdrawing from the world of mages because he feels like he's just too judged and no one's really hearing him yeah. or seeing him for who he is. And then also Simon's loneliness being have not being bereft of a family yeah. right he talks about the well beloved being a surrogate family but more distant than that like a yeah. surrogate surrogate family like even when he thinks he's found belonging it's not true belonging it's always conditional and the mage you know he never talked to me about father-son things like he's so in need of a father figure and he's just never had that no one's ever met him at that level it's very sad my opinion is that the mage kept him distant on purpose so that he wouldn't like love him too much I guess that's sort of my feeling about that but I wonder that I think that Dr. Wellbelove actually tried with Simon but he has a bit of like the Baz's dad problem where he's like I'll call him son and I'll talk to him about stuff and that'll be enough of a relationship but like it isn't enough for a kid who's been in homes his whole life right like he needs more and he's always looking for the other shoe to drop he's always waiting for you know reveal him the butt of the joke right he's he's not able to do it so I don't think that's any that's the fault of anyone else especially not Dr. Wellbeloved, who I think genuinely cares for Simon. Like, he mm. wants this kid to be okay. He wants to look after that's him. That son, yeah. That son thing really reminded me, because I saw Hamilton in London, finally, before I came home. Yeah, And you know, there's that whole it. bit where Hamilton and Washington, and Hamilton gets real riled up because he keeps calling him son, and he's mm -hmm. like, call me son one more time. Yeah. Because he also has this father figure issue, right? Yeah. And I feel like this is a real disconnect, and that really stood out to me when I was reading that bit. I'm like, ha son. Yes. Um, I want to talk about Fiona a little yes. bit, because I think she also feels acutely lonely. Yeah. I think as guardian of the pitch legacy, she sees herself very much as a one-man band out there on her own. She's missing this sister. She's trying to fill this void in the world. Yeah. You know, this the pitch legacy that needs to be <laughs> kept alive, but also redeemed in a way. Like, she's still fighting for this thing that she thinks the mage took from them. And I think there's an another thing about expectation. Like, the expectation that we have three seats on the council, like, how that breeds bigotry, that kind of expectation. Like, Mitali is another one. She expects things from people, like, this bigotry towards normals yeah. because of that expectation. But yeah, so she feels, I think Fiona feels really lonely. She's trying to find, we know from reading the book that she's trying to find 
Natasha's ring, mm. right? The family ring because she wants to get married. And the loneliness in that as well. She can't talk to anyone about that. She She's on her own. It's a very lonely thing. And then she... I think, you know, Baz's expectation of her and her behaviour and how she doesn't listen and how she's reckless. And that really sets up the confrontation they'll have later on, this real breakdown yeah. in their relationship that they need to have because she doesn't really listen to him. Or You know, he says on page 12 about her car, which Fiona treats as carelessly as everything else in her life. And I genuinely think that includes him. Like, yes. He thinks that includes him. He's treated so carelessly by this woman who mm. is, for all intents and purposes, his surrogate mother. And the last link to his mother in a way that his dad can't be because his dad is married someone else and create like started a second family and that means that you know baz has to he only really has fiona to go to about this and she rebuffs him when he you know he sort of says i did this i gave i left all of mother's books in the at watford because i feel like she would like that and he you know fiona goes oh you didn't even know her and it's such yeah. a mean thing to say. And she immediately apologized. And she's like, oh, I haven't had a cigarette in three days or whatever. But, you know, it's still like... Yeah, but still... You don't have to say it. Well, even the way she says, you know, bail pitches don't pay bail or ransom. Which we know that they didn't pay the ransom for bears with the numpties kidnapped him. And he was in a freaking coffin for weeks. Always pay the ransom. My gosh. Just, like, when it's a person involved, just pay it. You know? Yeah. Anyway, I think there's a, there's a lot going on with Fiona. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting how if she had just actually opened up and been vulnerable, she would have gotten what she wanted more or less immediately. If she had said what she was yeah. looking for, Baz would have probably given it to her. But she wouldn't say. But she's, yeah, she's in her own little, she's fighting her own demons in her own, like, little war. And it's not necessarily the war, Baz says the war is over, but that, that's not the war that Fiona is fighting. That was just an external excuse, but she's still fighting that war on the inside. And, you know, her attitude towards Daphne, who, you know, has been a mother to Baz. She came along later, like, you know, whatever. But since she's been on the scene, she's been very good to Baz. And yeah, 100%. Very welcoming. And I mean, I don't know how I'd feel about a moody preteen vampire stepson if i had one I, th I think i'd find that quite challenging but she's just been very lovely about it yeah and they're quite snobby so <laughs> snobby about her and her magic and her not having any other interests other than having children when you have kids that little though it's hard to have any other interests honestly like i'm proud of her for going to book club even yeah it's hard to leave when they're still like nursing and teething and in nappies Oh my goodness. I will say that Baz and the whole swoon thing is the sweetest, cutest thing ever. Yes, and he calls him Little Puff. And he's like, what's wrong, Little Puff? Bad night? And I just, my heart got three sizes bigger. I know, it's so lovely. Yeah. Such a lovely piece of characterization, that. Yeah, he's definitely, like, dad material. I think he likes Oh my kids. gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> Simon would lose his mind. I cannot, like, wait. I'm sure there's fanfic for that, but... <laughs> Um, I, I do, I think I had a few more for loneliness. I do love that Ruth's loneliness is like literally the first thing. She talks about how lonely it is not to have her kids and also how lonely it is to have to bear all of this alone. And I think there's something really interesting about when you're married for such a long time and you do get used to like just sharing a life with someone and then to have that gone, you still sort of keep that person. Or even if you've been in a relationship for a while or someone you care about someone and you've lost them. You still think about what would they like, what would they say, what would they do, what would they think. And that's big in her mind because, you know, she's sort of having this glass of, of 
wine and saying, oh, you know, I shouldn't, I think that, you know, my husband would disapprove for me having spirits so close at hand, but also like he's not here and I have to bear all of this alone. And I love that she's able to acknowledge her loneliness, but at the same time, like point out that she's having to bear all of this alone. So she's allowed a little, yeah. a little treat for morale. Fair enough. Yeah. It just made me feel sad because I like having my buddy. I like being in a buddy system. Yeah. We try not to think about it. Yeah. But look at Malcolm and Daphne, right? Like he also is alone in that moment. He also feels lonely and overwhelmed because she's mm. just up and left. And there doesn't seem to be any communication about what's happening. Like this is the, this was the distressing part was that Baz can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. He's like, I think Daphne's left my father, but mm, unclear. Yeah, it's very strange. He has to get the details from Ordelia, so she's the one with all the goss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Ordelia. Amazing. Um, I had one of my tangential. Are we on to tangential? Yeah, go on. All right, one of my tangential made me laugh, and I thought, it's you, was Agatha refusing to do any small talk and her parents not being sure. I was like, this uh, is no. Jen. Jen doesn't do small talk. I could just imagine you sitting there like, I'm not making conversation. I really love her as well in that moment because she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to make this easy for you because you've literally made nothing easy for me. Like you've put me, your expectations have put me in this position. I've had a horrible time. I'm not doing it. And I'm like, baller, go get it, Agatha. I know it cracks me up. I kind of love her complaint of people using magic for dumb things as well. You know, things that are, they are perfectly normal options instead and I love that it is mirrored by Shep who is just so practical like so we see Matali trying to remove a splinter with a spell and he's like just use tweezers mm. or yeah. you know Bun spends all Penelope spends all this time like takes her 12 spells to turn the wall into a blackboard and he's like you know there's paint there's for this paint? <laughs> like, it's like I don't have time for your magical paint and he's like no it's just normal paint <laughs> I loved that I loved both of those examples it cracked me up that Pip was like no experiments, Pip says. I play piano. You never practice, she says. I will, he swears. That's <laughs> such a mean I love thing. That yeah. Like... <laughs> you're not casting experimental spells on my hand. And then you're the worst. <laughs> so very. They have so many kids. They have five kids, right? There's yeah. Pernal, Penelope, Pacey, Priya. Priya, and Pip. That's so many kids. I'm one of five, and that is so many kids. That's why their house is always chaotic. Yeah, it's it's hard to keep it clean when there's that many people there. And none of them like cooking or tidying. Um, Shep has some really good one-liners. In addition to, you know, there's a paint. <laughs> when Penelope says, Londoners don't talk in the underground. He says, but I'm not from London. <laughs> just like the perfect <laughs> response. I don't think he's being rude. He's just having a conversation. And um, I love that he's like, but I'm not a Londoner. Does not apply. <laughs> Doesn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, and I also love that he's excited that he's this in with a group of magicians. I never thought I'd be this in with a group of magicians. Nobody gets in with magicians. True. But you're Shep, so of course you did. I love the line that, you know, Mitali is like, oh, Shepard, Penelope, where do you find these tragic morons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty terrible. And also when, you know, Penelope says to him, like, maybe it does, like he says, maybe it doesn't apply to normals, the sphere of accountability. And she's like, normals are still people, Shepard. And he says, I'm surprised to hear you say so. Mm. Mm. I loved that. Yeah. I love that sphere of accountability thing. And I super, like, I love the idea of using that as like a metric for what to and what not to adopt as something that you are responsible for. 
So it's on page 34. Yeah. You can't pick up every piece of litter, right? You can't stop and pick up every napkin or piece of paper you see on the street. But my mom used to say that once we touched something, we were responsible for it. This is so great because there are so many things that I want to fix. And like all I have to do is not touch it and then I'm not responsible for it. And that's going <laughs> to save me so much time as a person who's like a chronic put their hand up to volunteer. Like just today, my back hurts so much. I've been literally like alternating between lying on a heating pad and sitting with a heating pad. And yet some the call went out, can somebody pick my kid up for soccer? And I was like, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> like, I can't not say no. I cannot. Don't touch it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't have to. I can just not touch it. Got to remember, once you touch something, you're responsible mm. for it. I had a tangential about Lady Ruth casting these spells of protection out into the universe for all these years that Lucy's been away, right? Yeah. And so she has been shielding Simon unknowingly mm. for years, shielding him from the humdrum. Who knows? And I have this whole theory about Simon holding a charge. Like, I think the more people cast on him, the more he absorbs magic. Mm -hmm. So if Ruth was casting on him all this time, that would have just added to his power. And we know she's an incredibly powerful magician, right? So yeah. it's just him, like, absorbing it. And it's just such a lovely line, page three. I imagine the words finding them, my daughter and her child, and acting as another blanket of protection, pulled tight over their shoulders. And I'm like, yeah, this absolutely is a thing, I think, is my headcanon. I agree. I think that that's part of why he's always been lucky. Yeah. And I think it's also why he's always been able to protect others when he was in the mode, right? When he went off. Because isn't in the first book, doesn't Baz say, like, it, you, like you, you could be, he would just protect you. And everything that yeah. was a threat would be obliterated, but you would be protected. And I think that's just unconscious, right? But I wonder if that's not his, like, unconscious learned behavior from all of these protection spells that have been finding him and keeping him safe over all of the years that he was, you know, an itinerant Alive. child. Yeah. Yeah. I love Lady Ruth. I'm so glad we get a book with Shep and Lady Ruth in it. It just makes my heart so happy. She's great. <laughs> She's the best. And Shep is the best. <laughs> I love also Shep's description of Penelope as Velma from Scooby-Doo, but make it lazy and how he's super into her. <laughs> I love how much he's into this whole vibe of hers. And he's just so keen to get her smiling and on side. Hmm. Yeah, he's not deterred, is he, by her finding him infuriating? <laughs> no, he's just like, nope, gonna keep turning up like a bad penny. He's yeah. very charming. But yeah, this was such a good, like such a good start to this book and i think the next couple of weeks are going to be really rough but once we get past them oh yeah once you get past <laughs> the first like 30 pages of this book I, I just remember reading this for the first time and just like basically you know not even what is it 60 pages and i'm like what is happening mm -hmm. right now what am i living through <laughs> the ordeal but then it gets better so that's fine yes. I, I like that i like that we it's not drawn out but we can talk about that when we get to it absolutely uh, one of one of the things that my daughter has been learning as we watch Voyager together is like if something seems to wrap up she will check the time on the episode to see how much time is left and she'll be like oh there's eight minutes left something else is going to happen and I'm like that's really good intuition because <laughs> one of the things she has to learn for school is like characters like what makes a person what makes a character who they are so we talk a lot about yeah. and it's great in older shows where they like really i don't know new shows do not have the same level of writing in some ways the characterization in older shows had to be like super obvious because they were weekly yeah but i love that she's now like clued into the plot part of it where it's like uh oh eight minutes left something else is gonna happen isn't it and i'm like yep it definitely is we're not done yet hang on there yeah, I had a really interesting chat because I stayed with friend of the pod, Frank, when I was in London. Hello, Frank. His wonderful wife, Andrea, Hello, who was Andrea. also a friend of the pod. And we had such good chats because obviously Andrea is a screenwriter and I was 
pre- preparing for my writing retreat. So lots of good chats about mm-hmm. writing with both of them. And Andrea was telling me about this film and she was saying how, you know, people keep saying in the reviews that the third act of this film is really weird. And she's like, but if you look at it, it's not actually the third act. It happens halfway through the second act. And she's like, I think if maybe if it did happen at the third act, it would have been different. I haven't seen this particular film, but it's just really interesting when you start noticing when things happen within, within Mm -hmm. a timeline. And you're like, this really affects where you think the story is going. And it can really affect your, if, if your expectations aren't met, it can really impact your enjoyment of a thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is good that all of the pain gets resolved fairly quickly in this book. Otherwise, it would have been a throw it at the wall sort of situation. Yeah, and like, this is something that we talked about, well, not in this particular writing retreat, but previous things I've done with this author where she would say, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of book you're writing, but you need to meet people's expectations. So you need to make sure that you set it up for people because that's when people mm-hmm. don't like books. If you're not delivering on the expectation of what they think it is. So don't tell people it's a romance when it's not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I Yes. And like, let the story follow its natural path. This is the other thing that you and I have both seen happen a lot in this age of like, what a twist, mm. what a twist. Like, it's okay if the story is predictable. That means you are doing it right. If they guess the ending, then you are telling the story correctly. It means that people are putting the clues together. It's interesting because I wonder if that happens less now, as you were saying, you know, people characterization is different because people are writing shows with the expectation that they will be binge watched. People yeah. are going to, they're going to drop all the episodes at once. People are going to watch them all likely in a weekend. So this ability to shift the narrative like they did with something like Lost or with the, what was it? The 100, Mm. how they change the story based on what they think people think are going to happen. They can't do that if you're, yeah, you can't really do that when you're writing for streaming. Yes. Uh, Very stressful when story, like when the authors or I guess when the like showrunner or the creator of a story instead of like gently subverting it will then just go no i'm gonna throw the whole like throw the throw the baby out with the bathwater. it is interesting though because i think you know when we talk about this book and we're both like it's good that it gets resolved early mm. and you know our expectations were met by this book as a finale in a trilogy right yeah. like neither of us had issues with it but there are people who did have issues with it and didn't think it was a good finish and this is the thing about expectations like we all come to it with our own expectations as well. Like every mm. reader, every watcher is going to have their own thing and no piece of media is ever going to meet all of it. Which is also an interesting thing to keep in mind if you're like writing or like producing a show, like a showrunner, right? Like who are you trying to subvert here? Because it's not one hive mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the the myth of the noisy majority, which is actually a very noisy minority, right? And I think... Usually, yeah. There's a lot of people who really have opinions about how a show should go and aren't shy about that. And I think that we should, as a society, just shut our mouths. Like, like <laughs> I think we can have opinions about it, but I don't think we can approach creators about what, especially if it's a story in progress. Like, who was writing Dickens every week when he was doing his serialized novel? Like, I'm sure people did do that, though. But, like, who was doing this? Who was, who was like, cranky with them? Like, sometimes <laughs> circumstances are what they are. I think we should not be able to approach creators if it's a work in progress and we're, like, we shouldn't tell them where it should be going oh but yeah so that's my opinion one of many that I have um but yeah I think that's all I have I mean I've got lots more but I think that's all I have that's relevant how about you yeah that was all of my tangential did you have an in-depth marginalia for us I do so mine is on page 19 
Premal, the oldest, moved back home a year and a half ago when the mage's men were disbanded. Premal still doesn't have a job, and he hasn't started university, but Mum won't let anyone mention it. After the news broke that the mage was a power-mad murderer, one of the other mage's men, a boy from Premal's year, tried to kill himself. No one in our house is allowed to mention that either. So this is sort of in Penny's head as she's going, planning to take Shep back to her house, and she's thinking about how big and messy her house is and all the people that live there and how her older brother is also living there and like these are things that she's not allowed to talk about and I, like this is one of the things about this book that has always struck me and stuck with me that Pramal is in this like really precarious mental state and they're not allowed to talk about it like I, I have a bit of an interest in the psychology around cults like I think everybody does I think they're really fascinating how you can get sucked into it I think it's really interesting to know what people are seeking when they kind of fall into this situation I know that really smart people can get pulled into cults like it's not it, it doesn't it's not a preying on stupid people thing it just is what it is and I think that that's a lot of what the mage was doing was very cult like right like it was this rigidity mm. it was this like preying on this idea of justice and power and I don't think it's a coincidence that these were all young teenage boys, like young men who are older teens. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we only really get this little snapshot of what, what Pramal's doing and how he's feeling. And it's kind of like filtered through Mitali and then through Penny. And it just really struck me that they're not allowed to talk about it. And I wonder how lonely he is. Like, he must be so lonely in that house because all of the expectations he had for being one of the mage's men, are gone. All of the expectations he might have had about who the mage actually was have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. All of the expectations he had for himself and that his parents had for him, he's having to renegotiate. And that's got to be so lonely. His belief system was altered, and maybe it still is altered. Like, I don't really know what he's thinking, but how do you put yourself back together when the expectations from both opposing sides are so different and neither suit you? Mm. It's really something to chew on. What this reminds me of in discussions we've had in the past, you and I have always, we've, we've often talked about how hard it is to go home again. Like, you can't really go home again. Like, the second you spend more than 20 minutes with your parents, you're like, I am going to tear my hair out. <laughs> like, like yeah. these people are driving me insane. Um, but there's a flip side of that, too. I was thinking, I, I got a, a video message from my cousin Sarah, and I immediately felt like I've never been to her house when they they moved after the last time I saw her, they moved, but I thought I could just go and spend time with her and it would be fine. And it's been about 10 years since I've seen her, but like, I know that I could just go there and be fine. And I thought, oh, I can go home again, but it's just different. So I wonder if there's a place for Premal like that. And that's kind of what I wonder, like uh, going forward, I, I, I wish this for Premal that he can find a place where he can go home again or maybe make one that feels good. Um, and I think I'd, I'd wish for that for all of us, too, to, to find the home we can return to, that no loneliness or expectation can place it beyond our reach. I don't know if that's really an action that I can take, but maybe just something to be mindful of in the future. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it must be so hard for Pramal to be back there as well, because it wasn't just him, like, yes, he essentially joined a cult, but it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, I'm off and they haven't seen him. He was actively, like raiding their house it was like yeah the quote being that he's ralph ralph from the sound of music yeah. right he was yeah. betraying the family and now he's back there and how do you face them and no one talks about it exactly yeah. like they're just letting it letting things happen and i i think it's because vitali's so busy probably she can't actually sit down and fix it but that's by, by yeah and she's also yeah 
And we know that Martin is in this whole... He's got his own cult thing happening, right? And Matali's yeah. aware of that yeah. as well. And, like, she's dealing with that. She's dealing with the world of mages. Like, it's just a lot going on for this family. Yeah. They need a break. Yeah. Gosh. Um, so that was me. Do you have an in-depth? I sure do. So mine is really early on. It's page two. Mm-hmm. And it's Lady Ruth. And she mm-hmm. says, I'm not spiteful. I don't hold grudges. There's no time for it. A grudge will eat you up your whole life and leave you on your deathbed, realizing you never lifted your head to the sun or had a second piece of cake. I left in the, I let in the light. I eat the cake. So she's lighting a candle for Jamie, her lost son, mm. and she's thinking about all her lost family and particularly the major's role in taking Lucy away, right? Mm. And she specifically says that she's not a melancholy woman, but there's such an acute loneliness in this scene and that, that comes through here, I think. Like, she's on her own. She's wishing for her family. Mm-hmm. And I think it also reminds me of the theme of expectations because she has expectations for herself and her own behavior, like how she yeah. wants to live her life, the kind of person she is. She is not a melancholy woman. She doesn't yeah. hold grudges, right? It made me think of haha, Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Something I've been talking about a lot recently with my friends, uh, particularly my friend Meredith. She loves a bit of Taylor Swift lore. Obviously, Taylor is touring here. Not that we ever got tickets for it, but never never mind that. We've been just been chatting a lot. And I've realized that one of the big themes in Taylor Swift's music is how much she gets bogged down in revenge. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just listening to a song for On Midnight's, an album that I loathe, but never mind, it came on on shuffle when I was walking back from the gym. And, you know, it's called, I've, <laughs> um, there's a line, I've been dressing for revenge. And then she talks about, and look what you made me do, about how she's got a list of names and yours is un- in red underline. She has this real thing about vengeance and getting a comeuppance on people who've done her wrong. Like, this is something that really occupies her mind. I think you see it in her behavior as well. I don't think it's just a musical thing. I think the way that she rewrites the narrative of things that have happened and she's really obsessed with setting the story right. There's this real thing that goes through it and it reminds me of mm. Arya Stark in Game of Thrones as well, how she keeps a list of all the people that wronged her and, like, she then goes and murders them all. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then I thought about that thing we've talked about on the podcast before about resentment being like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you are poisoning yourself and hoping that you can get a comeuppance on the other person. And there is a, a line that is attributed to the Buddha that says, holding onto anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else, but you're the one who gets burnt. And I think this is so, so important. Like, I love a bit of a revenge fantasy. Don't get me wrong. I'm human. I just, like, yes, of course. There's always the, the, the bit where you can imagine the person who did you wrong's face when they see you or whatever, you know. But at the end of our at the end of the day, our emotions are not who we are. We experience them, but they're not who we are. And I love that thing that I've said on the podcast before that I saw the tweet about, you know, be the fish, don't, like, be the fish pond, don't be the fish. Yeah. We are bigger than our emotions and revenge and vengeance and have holding a grudge and anger and all of these things are just emotions they don't define us they shouldn't stop us from feeling the sun or having the second piece of cake and I think that is such good life advice and so going forward I really just want to hold on to that like don't let your emotions rule you let the light in eat the cake yes I love that we should all eat the cake that's how you know she's Simon's grandmother (laughs) (laughs) I did love that Metelli's one comment was, uh, is Simon with you? I don't think I have that many fish fingers. Like, <laughs> she knows he will eat her out of house and home. But honestly, somebody needs to feed that boy. He's always hungry. Yeah. Uh, who would you like to spotlight this week? 
I am spotlighting Baz because just feel like everything is very grim for him. Fiona hurts him so easily. He feels that he doesn't belong anywhere. He's not able to talk to anyone about it. He can't talk to his father. He can't talk to Simon. Simon repeatedly misses his bids for connection. He's always, always out in the cold. And I think that is so, so hard when he's always trying to do the right thing. And I just felt, really, really felt for him in this section. Poor little possum. He deserves better. Who would you like to spotlight? Um, I would like to spotlight Simon. Um, mostly because he had that talk with Dr. Wellbelove and he had to kind of come to terms with the fact that whether he likes it or not, he is the mage's heir still. And that, that includes being, you know, having an inheritance. But also there's this thing that kept coming up was that he didn't really have any agency and he feels like he did. And so there's a really fine line in that that I think needs to be explored and I'm going to keep my eye out for it he did have agency Mm. as a child but he's not allowed to say that he did everybody wants to say oh you were manipulated and that just really struck me like sometimes you make dumb choices and you want to be like no I own that I own that dumb choice but nobody's letting him own that so it's really I just want to give him a hug and tell him he's allowed to take responsibility he can touch that piece of paper he can have that sphere of accountability if he wants it yeah yeah um, did you have any homework for our readers this week? Um, I watched a film on the flight back to Wellington from Melbourne. It's called Red, White and Brass. It's a Kiwi film. It came out in 2023. It's based on a true story about a Tongan community trying to get tickets to the a World Cup game here in Wellington. Oh. And so they decide to form a brass band and get to perform at the, the opening, at the, at the game, basically. Oh. And they don't have a band. <laughs> it's a friend of a friend, actually. It's his true story. He wrote the film and... I've been meaning to watch it, so watching it on the plane, I was like, I cannot believe that this is this has actually happened. Like it is unhinged. Amazing. So I would highly recommend it. It's very wholesome, um, and also a new season of The Bear is out, so I'm gonna go start that. And apparently, right Olivia Coleman's in it, which I just saw, and I was like, because <gasps> she just makes everything better. Yeah, and The Bear is already great. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it immediately. It's very stressful. I will say, if you have any like Lion Cook related trauma or triggers don't watch it because if you've like if you honestly if you've worked in a kitchen I know a lot of people who've done some chefing at different points and they're like I can't watch it I can't watch it it just it's like it's like watching a war movie or something it's not it's not for everyone yeah they had an actual chef um consult on it to make it that realistic because it is incredibly realistic but yeah but it's an incredible show yeah Did you have any homework? Yeah, so I've been watching something Australian, very uniquely Australian. I've been watching Deadlock. Um, my husband oh, and I yep. started watching it. It is written by the Cates, McCartney and McLennan, who are, I don't know if anyone outside of the Antipodes even knows who these women are, but they wrote Get Crackin' and The Catering Show with Ks, and they are incredibly funny. And so Deadlock is about a tiny town in Tasmania that has a serial killer and basically the town is like half old boys and half lesbians and it's amazing it is so funny it is so funny i cannot recommend it enough but language warning on that one they use every word in the book including the c word <clears throat> so if that's not it your is bag, australian yeah it's, it's australian it's very, it is very australian but if that's not your bag just a warning but it's so good i i can't even believe i care about the mystery but i really care about the mystery too <laughs> so we are only three episodes in but i'll let you know how it goes because i am just dying to keep going well next week we're going to be reading chapters 11 through 19 through the theme of confusion confusion 
my we will be confused state i was at questacon last week and i bought a pin that says um the element of confusion cute so that will come up i'm sure ah it's good to be back thanks for potting with it is me. good to be back back in the f- the the flow of it back in the routine mm, it's pretty perfect i'm glad we're here and i'm glad we're reading this book i've been waiting yeah it's waiting. been a long old time waiting for this chunky boy <laughs> all right well i will see you next week then exciting see you soon bye thank you for joining us today marginalia pod is written edited and produced by us gen d and gen v We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to hello at marginaliapod.com, check out our Instagram, or maybe dash off a quick review. You can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our music is by Scott Buckley, and the logo artwork is by Laura Cato. You can find detailed show notes for each episode and much more at our website www.marginaliapod.com. Special thanks to all the people in our various communities whose love and care sustains us. Without your support, we would be very sad little critters. We appreciate you. And to you, our wonderful listeners, thanks again for being here. We love spending this time with you. 